Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I'm afraid I'll warn you, trigger alert, it's going to be a little bit of a geek out tonight. I've got a lot of interesting science topics and multiple articles kind of taking a walk around, kicking the tires on various concepts, and I sure hope you'll enjoy it. I also have some useful stuff for you and answers to emails that have come in throughout the week. Here we go with a couple of useful things, something that I think we could all stop for a moment and think about is the, well, there's that wonderful Dolly painting with the melting clocks. It's called the persistence of memory, but actually memory isn't all that persistent. And we have evidence that witnesses uh, often misidentify suspects. Uh, The Innocence Project, an American charity examined 375 cases of wrongful conviction, proved wrongful, I might add, by DNA evidence. It's about as good as it gets. And found misidentification of suspects was a factor in about 70% of these wrongful convictions. And then those of us who were around in the 80s and 90s may remember uh, the satanic panic. This was when Thousands of ordinary people up and down the country were accused of secretly being members of devil-worshipping cults which were abusing, raping, and murdering children on a rather industrial scale. I remember one particular case where everyone who was running a preschool uh, went down, later proved innocent, but uh, did many years in prison. Alleged The alleged victims often made very detailed allegations Uh, And they had therapy that was memory recovery therapy that was supposed to be, well, uh, re-uncovering buried memory. But uh, many people went to prison and actually it was all disproved. So this has led to us thinking that eyewitness testimony is completely unreliable. And there have been experiments by psychologists uh, that demonstrated that memories can be very malleable. But recently, at an annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a psychologist at UC San Diego named John Wickstead argued that we've gone too far with this. In fact, Dr. Wickstead argues that eyewitness memories can be very reliable, but they need to be tested in in the right circumstances. And a key factor is the confidence of witnesses in their assessments. So what he did in his uh, experiments was he had people be witnesses to a simulated crime. And if they are confident of having identified the suspect in a later photo photo lineup, they're almost always correct. Also, more importantly, if they're sure the suspect is not present, that's also highly likely to be true. It's only when the witness is unsure that the risk of misidentification starts to go up. And he did a field study in 2016 with Houston's police, and they came to similar conclusions. The problem here is that that confidence that the witness has, it's trustworthy only the first time they get asked the question. And one of the unavoidable frustrations of quantum mechanics is that measuring a particle's position or energy irretrievably 
alters it. I can't bounce a photon off an electron without changing the path of the electron. By observing something, I change it. If you see that you're on camera, your behavior is going to change. Uh, well, there's something similar that happens with memory. The very act of testing them, according to Dr. Wickstead, contaminates every other test that comes after. Assessing people's faces for a possible match in a lineup, for example, lodges those faces in the witness's memory. And once that happens, anything from police encouragement to the high-pressure environment of a courtroom can twist the subsequent attempts at recollection. In other words, You've messed up the memory by asking the question. So Dr. Wickstead drew a comparison with evidence such that something like DNA samples, if you don't handle them properly, you can contaminate them. That doesn't mean that they're inherently unreliable. DNA testing is very reliable. But it does mean that there's a, there needs to be a specific technique to guard the integrity of the information. And the same, he says, is true of witnesses. He and Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Alt-Loftus, who also studies memories, uh, recently published a paper and came to the conclusion that the best way to test a witness memory as fairly is to do it as fairly as possible, that, which means do it only once. It's still extremely important. Dr. Wickstead cited the case of a man called named Carlos Don Flores, a prisoner who uh, was awaiting execution for a murder committed in 1998. Initially, when shown a lineup that included Mr. Flores, a crucial witness for the prosecution said none of the people matched her recollection. She had recalled a white man with long hair. Flores is of Latin American extraction and had short hair when uh, at the time. But by the time the case came to trial a year later, she had changed her mind and Mr. Flores was convicted. His appeal on the basis of the witness's change of mind was been, uh, has been denied. Actually, Dr. Wixit says it's probably a very, very good basis because his studies show that people are far more likely to be right the first time and wrong the second. Certainly going to change my way of thinking about patient histories and particularly uh, how Dr. Google and reading things on the internet might actually shift what people tell me and perhaps change the consequence, the conclusions that I'm led to make. Well, that was an interesting factoid and not too geeky. This one as well is useful. And I want to tell you about an old drug in new clothes. And that drug is called colchicine. Colchicine has actually been around for a long time. It's an anti-inflammatory drug primarily used for gout. And it was used all the way back to the ancient Egyptians. You'll find it in Hippocrates' writing. And colchicine has the broad cellular effects. It primarily interferes with the the responsiveness of the white blood cells to uh, inflammatory signals. And very importantly, it inhibits the pol- the polymerization of tubulin, which is a, well, you've seen scaffolding that's used in construction. So I want you to imagine that these amoeba cells, the macrophages, for example, are constantly constructing a, a scaffolding around their 
well, their body bag, basically, their cell wall, inside, pushing it out in one direction. And as the cell flows in the direction of the pseudopod, the scaffolding on the back side of the cell is dismantled, allowing the cell wall on that side to collapse and be pulled forward. And that's how they migrate, by this constant uh, polymerization and then depolymerization of these molecular components. And there's some wonderful, um, if you Google, uh, say, Oxford Scientific uh, on YouTube, you will see the most amazing depictations of these sorts of, well, they're basically cartoon animations of how these things happen, but it's so beautiful in there inside the dynamic cells that one can get lost just in the beauty of it. But I digress, as usual. So recently, trials looking at colchicine and cardiovascular outcomes, this was called the Colcott trial, had people who had had a myocardial infarction within the last 30 days before they were enrolled, and they were given a small dose of colchicine, 0.5 milligrams once daily, or placebo. And then they were measured over a period of time for uh, cardiovascular death, resuscitated cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, stroke, or urgent hospitalization for angina, leading to some sort of bypass or stenting. And what it showed was remarkable. It showed that the that colchicine really reduced inflammation, and it in, and it reduced it reduced all of these outcomes in people who had had recent heart attacks. So a real game changer. But this study that I'm about to tell you about looks at low dose colchicine in patients with chronic coronary disease, and that could be an old heart attack. That could be people with state with so-called stable angina. That could be people who had sub-occlusive. Uh, vascular disease. In other words, they had plaques that probably didn't meet criteria for uh, for stenting because stenting itself carries risks, but were there showing that there's progressive disease. And of course, even a 10% plaque can rupture if it's inflamed. So it makes sense that using anti-inflammatories might be helpful in such cases. And they did find a substantial reduction in uh, patients in their study. They had uh, over 5,000 patients, and they followed them for two years. In uh, So what they found was that 187 patients had one of the endpoints, a heart attack. I've already listed them. I won't list them again. Uh, and that was uh, 6.8 of the colchicine group. And then 264 Remember, they started out with equal numbers, 9.6% in the placebo. So that's a substantial decrease. That's a almost a 50% reduction, and it was highly statistically significant. And they found similar things uh, in any of the secondary endpoint events, and that could be uh, any kind of cardiac disease. Everything's significantly lower with colchicine than placebo, and there was no significant difference in uh, non-cardiovascular deaths. There were some side effects, and uh, this the the colchicine is known 
to have uh, certain side effects. The primary side effects were GI ups, uh, upset. There were no change, no differences in the rate of cancer, the rates of pneumonia, the rates of gastrointestinal disease, and no effect on wound healing in the post-surgical. Now, uh, we didn't have that many women in the study, so we uh, they didn't collect blood pressure data, and they didn't measure C-reactive protein. That last one uh, is a bit disappointing because that, of course, is an excellent marker for inflammation, and it would have been super interesting to uh, see what's uh, going on. Are you ready for the geek out? Because here we go. Some interesting, interesting things emerging on the cancer and particularly the melanoma front. So the severity of cancers, possibly in general, but certainly we're going to be discussing melanoma cancers where it is well-established, I think, the invasivity of a melanoma cancer correlates with certain variations in the gut, fungal, and bacterial profiles. In other words, there's a microbiome fingerprint that tells you whether or not this early melanoma is likely to have already spread. Is this a chicken or an egg, right? Is the is the melanoma affecting the uh, cancer, the microbiome, or is the microbiome actually, in some way, facilitating the spread of the cancer? Well, my money is on the latter, but this study can't tell you that. Association does not prove causality. We're going to have to do some interesting little uh, microbiome transplants, maybe with the unfavorable microbiome in experimental animals and uh, see whether we see a worsening as a result uh, of the microbiome transplant. I'm looking forward to seeing how those studies come out. But even in early melanoma, there appears to be a progression of change in the microbiome diversity pattern that's reproducible across the population. So what the researchers in this study, which came out of the British Journal of dermatology showed was that the microbiome is a crucial player in the immune checkpoint in cancer. And melanoma is a highly immunogenic tumor. It should basically trigger a strong immune response. It appears that the composition of the gut microbiome is correlated to prognosis and evolution of advanced melanoma and it's being proposed as a biomarker for immune checkpoint therapy. So what is an immune checkpoint? Well, T-cells, which are the main immune cells that are supposed to be fighting cancer, uh, don't attack normal cells under most circumstances. If they do, it's called autoimmune disease, and we treat it with immune suppressants. And one of the reasons that T-cells don't do that is that they bind to partner proteins on other cells. And those partner proteins are basically a friend signal, you know, that's like the sentry at the middle of the night bumps into a guy in the dark and says, friend or foe. And the guy says, friend. And then the the guy, then the sentry says, well, what's the password? And, you know, this sounds like something out of, uh, you know, out of a World War II movie. And in fact, it probably goes back to at least the Napoleonic Wars, if not the war between, between uh, Athens and Sparta. But 
those friend signals and those passwords, well, obviously a spy or a melanoma might find a way to to give a immune checkpoint Trojan horse and say, oh no, I'm I'm a friend, but actually it's not. So immune checkpoint inhibitors, I think you can understand now, are things that prevent the T cells from turning off when they're offered a friend signal. And that is a very promising therapy in melanoma, but it also, as you might imagine, has a dark side since the whole point of immune checkpoints is to reduce or eliminate autoimmunity. Well, you can see where that goes. Despite, uh, so immune checkpoint therapy, patients often uh, suffer from those side effects. What these researchers were doing, they were saying, well, is there something about the uh, microbiome that allows for an enhancement of the cancer's making uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors somehow help? uh, And what they found was a real difference in control people and those with melanoma. People with melanoma had much higher levels of Prevotella, Copri, and Saccharomycetales yeasts. That's different than Saccharomyces, which is one of the ones that I recommend, by the way. There's these names vary by maybe a, you know, one single syllable, and it's a completely different phyla. So what they found was that the, the, the bacterial and fungal community correlated with the melanoma in with the melanoma invasiveness and a certain they found a certain fungal profile that actually correlated with melanoma regression and they were able to identify one phyla of uh, bacteria the bacterioides as a general marker of immunogenicity so both uh, so the the melanomas that were regressive that were being successfully fought by the immune system uh in those people, there was more, bit more bacterioides. Again, we don't have uh, a chicken. We don't know if it's a chicken or an egg or both. Uh, but in people with stage one and stage two melanoma, the bacterial communities were actually different in structure and richer, more various than those with metastatic melanoma, almost as if the bacteria were somehow affecting the melanoma. But that is a hypothesis at this point changes in that changes in the microbiota and the mycobiota in other words the fungal microbiome were uh, pro- proceeded through a progression as the cancers became worse and this was across individuals which is in and of itself a fairly significant bit of information so in a, another correlated study this one uh, coming out of, I'm sorry, uh, let's see, I'm not, it's a UK-based observational study, and it was uh, published in Nature Medicine in February 28th. And they were uh, looking at a meta-analysis does the, and trying to show that the direction of causality is from the microbiome to the immune checkpoint inhibitors. What they did find was a complex relationship, and naturally, being reductionist scientists, they were looking for a single species that would be a consistent biomarker. You're not going to find that 
there are many ways to have a healthy garden. Uh, but what they did see was that uh, certain bacteria, including Acromansia municipilia, which we've talked about before because it is an anti-inflammatory bacteria, was correlated with the success of immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy and a reduction in toxicity. So they looked at the stool samples of 165 uh, patients who had not been treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors and had unresectable stage 3 or stage 4 melanoma. And then they looked at their microbiomes and they found several standouts, uh, particularly the uh, Rosaburia and uh, something, oh God, these are so hard to pronounce, Vascularitatobacterium succinatutans and Lactobacillus vaginalis were enriched responders. In other words, higher levels of those were found in people who did well with the immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, therapy. So what this suggests is a that the bacteria can be protective against the cancer, that the bacteria change as the cancer progresses, and that the, this immune checkpoint inhibitor overreaction can be mitigated by microbiome therapy. And then this other study, also looking at melanoma, looked at dietary fiber. This was pat- published in Science back in December 23rd, and they were looking at uh, advanced melanoma, people who were getting immune checkpoint inhibitors, and uh, they looked at those who were consuming how much dietary fiber, basically, those who were taking 20 grams of dietary fiber daily had a significantly better progression-free survival than those taking lower amounts of uh, fiber. Taking probiotics, however, did not help. Each 5-gram increase in dietary fiber was a 30% lower risk of disease progression. That's a substantial difference. So fiber as a beneficial modulator of the microbiome is advice I've been giving out practically weekly for the last... I don't know how many years, and fiber is the best way to do it, not not commercial probiotics. The particularly root vegetable fibers, but also things like, well, tree bark, certain kinds of tree bark contain high levels of inulin. Some of the FODMAPs that, like artichokes and asparagus contain high amounts of inulin as well. And what they found was really interesting data about protection against the complications of chemotherapy and responsiveness to this type of chemotherapy. It's a really solid study, and I look forward to seeing where they go from that. And then one last study, this one in uh, prostate cancer, showing that uh, in uh well, first of all, prostate cancer people are often treated with hormone uh, reduction or uh, prevent, uh, the prevention of sex hormones. Sometimes in the olden days that used to be done with actual castration. Now it's done with a drug which effectively turns off testosterone production. So these were uh, this was a study done in mice genetically prone to develop prostate cancer. And uh, they were given... Uh, they were given castration as a treatment, and that worked for a while, but then 
it stopped working, which is what typically happens. As that castration resistance developed, two species of gut bacteria that are capable of producing active androgens started to increase. So in other words, the gut flora recognized that the andro- that the androgen, the testosterone level, had dropped, and a species that makes them actually stepped forward and began making hormones. And if you... Uh, first of all, why that would happen is just, it's crazy that it happened, but presumably the microbiome liked having the testosterone along, and some of the bacteria acting as a group organism stepped forward and started producing it, I might add, at a considerable cost metabolically, but to keep the whole combination of the microbiome stabilized. So it's acting like a superorganism. If in this study that they completely missed that point, but I just had to put that in there. But what they did find was that if they did the castration therapy and then they gave them a bunch of antibiotics and knocked out the diversity of the microbiome, it took much uh, later. It took much longer for the uh, castration resistance to emerge and the tumor to start growing again. And then what they found was that if you took the bacteria from mice that were castration resistant, uh, surprise, surprise, they it, it sped up the progress of the cancer uh, in the mice who received the transplant. So, wow, wheels within wheels within wheels. It's pretty amazing. And the microbiome, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of this fascinating topic. I'll always be back with more on this one, I think. We have a uh, email here from Carol in Bonaire, Dutch Caribbean, subject young poop. And she talks about an article uh, that showed that transplanting the doing a fecal transplant from a younger mouse helped stave off the effect of aging. And they used inflammatory markers and some uh, some genetic markers to look at aging in these mice, and what they found was that the young microbiome had a rejuvenating effect on the older mice. And we've also seen that, of course, with young blood. And, you know, the unifying factor here, uh, Carol, is always inflammation. If you reduce inflammation, uh, you rejuvenate the cells. Our next email comes from Inez in Spain. And Inez writes, uh, natural anti-inflammatory, omega-3, K2, MK7, uh, and curcumin, and wound healing. Dear Dr. Don, I've been a regular listener for more than 15 years. It's amazing how time flies. Yes, Inez, I agree. And really, really appreciate your program and your interest in helping people sharing your huge knowledge and savoir-faire. Thanks a lot for week after week carrying on with such remarkable work. Well, you're welcome. I really enjoy it, Inez. Let's get on to your question. My question is about healing, cicatrization, that's scar formation, and collagen formation. I heard that some anti-inflammatory drugs impair collagen formation and deposition, and so delay wound healing. Have the natural anti-inflammatory substances like omega-3 or MK7, K2, uh, vitamin, the same risk. What about curcumin? Should I discontinue their use right after surgery? What about bisphosphonates? I've been a 
hydronic acid, one that we don't have available in this country that is clearly used for osteoporosis in Spain. Apart from corticosteroid, any other over-the-counter drug with this effect? Thanks a lot for your help and constant support. Inez from Spain. Well, Inez, the major culprit here is the steroid hormones in all of their forms, both synthetic and natural, which by which I'm saying that people who are under a lot of stress will often have delayed wound healing. Uh, People who have a lot of inflammation will have delayed wound healing, and certainly a wound infection will delay wound healing, probably at least partially because turning off the innate inflammation uh, in order to fight the infection creates a lot of debris that has to be cleaned up before you can get to the job of rebuilding. But in the case of uh, steroids, it actually does impair healing at uh, very substantially. You need a little inflammatory signal to initiate repair. And when a person is taking regular steroids over a long period of time, they're initial inflammatory spike is blunted. You don't actually see that in the natural substances to enough of a degree to have the same effect. The mechanisms between how steroids work and how omega-3s work is entirely different. Curcumin Curcumin simply isn't strong enough to do what the steroids do and impair the immune response and prevent that spike. So uh, with the case of the omega-3s, the the spike still happens at exactly the same level, but the inflammatory markers that are sort of the secondary, let's say the, the spike is the match and the inflammatory markers are what keep the fire going, uh, those are different if you're taking uh, reasonable doses of omega-3. You simply, your inflammatory markers are not as inflammatory. And remember, our diet uh, evolutionarily was much higher in omega-3 than the current uh, post-agriculture diet because it contained less grain, and grain is primarily omega-6. If you then invent uh, steam power or other forms of industrial Uh, extraction, and you extract oil from grains, safflower oil, anyone, then you're really getting into serious omega-6 overload. And the, the inflammatory chemical signals that are made with from the omegas, either the three or the six, these are called prostaglandins and leukotrienes. These signals are just louder, brighter, and more inflammatory if they're made from an omega-6 skeleton. As far as MK2, as far as vitamin K2 is concerned, I have never seen anything uh, suggesting that there is any inhibition of wound healing, and I very seriously doubt that there is any there there on that one. And as I said, curcumin just isn't strong enough to do it. But while we're talking about healing, I do want to emphasize how important it is to be off bisphosphonates for a period of time if we're talking about bone healing. The, uh, if you break a bone that has been, that you have, have been bathing in bisphosphonates, like Fosamax, for example, your, that bone is 
is going to have a harder time healing because there's going to be a lot of indigestible bone at the break that the normal cells that go in there and crunch up the debris and carry it away are going to have a hard time doing that. So the bone is going to have a harder time healing. The other over-the-counter drug that has been on and off implicated in in impairing healing is very high-dose non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. That would be your ibuprofens and your naprosins, but that's a, a mild effect, and the dose has to be very, very high. Primarily what I tell people to do if they're trying to build muscle and they're really pushing their training is I'll tell them to lay off of their ibuprofen or their naprosin while they do their workout and their sport, and then if there's any chance that they've pushed hard enough to hurt themselves, they can go ahead and start the ibuprofen then because the inflammatory spike that's going to cause the production of more actin and more myosin and more collagen, that's already taken place. It's just like you don't need the, the you don't need the fire alarm to keep ringing after the fire department has arrived, right? You just need it to call for help. After that, it's not important. And in fact, all of that inflammation is going to slow down the healing process, as I've already implied. So our uh, next email comes from Sybil uh, in SoCal. Uh, subject, Yerba Mate, Tulsi, Feverfew, Xanthan Gum, and Iodine. Uh, dear Dr. Don, it's either from Brooks or on Dr. Google that I'm getting conflicting information. I've read uh, that the following are unsafe. Oh, my, my, conflicting information on the Internet. What is a doctor to do? Well, let's try to put things in proportion. Let's start with yerba mate. Yerba mate is a leaf that is often prepared in South America. It is a mild stimulant, and it has a high level of antioxidants. There's some, there's some evidence that it could be helpful actually in preventing and treating certain cancers. Most of the data is in prostate cancer in animal models. However, it's promising. Mixed use of large, uh, use of large amounts for a long period of time. And this would be probably older men who smoke in South America who also consume, you know, pots of this stuff a day has an increased risk of oral cancer, so it could be working as a cofactor for oral cancer. Uh, then she asks about Tulsi or holy basil. Well, holy basil and Tulsi contain eugenol that's also found in cloves. By the way, oil of eugenol is awesome for toothache, so if you don't have any, get some because it numbs up the the teeth like nobody's business. I don't travel without it. Uh it is toxic in overdose, like just about every essential oil you can think of. You don't want to drink large quantities of it because it's very powerful. It contains stuff that it's hard for the liver to break down, and it's extremely irritating to the digestive tract. Oh, yeah, and so don't chew the leaves because that's where the oil is. Same thing for feverfew. Uh, feverfew is good for migraines. It's uh, good for bone pain. It's extremely helpful in uh, many ways, but it does have liver toxicity at high, at high doses, and occasionally people will have an allergy to it. Uh, xanthan gum, well, in my view, the primary problem with xanthan gum 
is that it alters the microbiome and altering the microbiome is just never uh, a great idea. In this case, it alters it in a bad direction because it is a fiber and it's not a fiber that is promoting healthy bacteria uh, like the things I was talking about earlier in the program. One last question. How much iodine should a vegan take as a supplement every day? Well, Sybil, assuming that you do not have thyroid problems, then you certainly want to keep taking enough to prevent thyroid problems. Uh, Sybil says she's taking 270 micrograms of iodine, and that's enough to keep you from developing a goiter. If uh, a person is, let's say you have a strong uh, history, either personal or uh, familial of breast cancer, I encourage people to take a much higher dose of iodine, possibly as much as six milligrams uh, a day. Uh, and that's because, that's, by the way, 6,000 micrograms, uh, because it will saturate the iodine receptors in the breast tissue and will act to s- slow growth of breast tissue. So there can be some benefit to the uh, kelp in large doses. I prefer if people actually just use iodine rather than massive amounts of kelp because kelp bioconcentrates certain toxins and we have a lot of arsenic raining down into our oceans, not to mention mercury. And I'm not sure about how much mercury gets concentrated in uh, kelp, but I know that arsenic does. And so that's something that we want to be careful about. Let's go to Aline. Welcome to the program. I'm trying to express this aging question now that I'm an old lady. Um, Beyond women that I've known and seen who are built like giraffes and they're all tall, it makes you think that when they get pregnant, their babies can stand up. And I've known them that they don't have, have hardly any stretch marks at all. I've chose not to have babies, but beyond that, um, I'm five foot three, and why is got the so-called middle-aged bulge? And um, ah, well, the middle-aged bulge. You mean you you go from being a pear to an apple? Yes. Yes. In a word, my dear, it's a, in a word, my dear, it's estrogen. Uh, oh, oh, right, right. I forgot. Yeah, I did learn that. But however, in, uh, in the last. I don't know, five or more years at least. Um, why does it push more on the bladder? Is aging the bladder is aging and moving? You've got falling? that. You've got it right. Basically, estrogen is a growth hormone for a lot of things, both below and above the waist. Mm-hmm. And when you have a body that's gotten used to having estrogen support its structures for all those years, and then you suddenly withdraw the estrogen, mm. well, those structures uh, no longer have the, the amount of growth that they are used to having, and they deteriorate. And mm. in this is, happens more quickly in women who don't take estrogen supplementation. Mm. So that's one factor. But, you know, you have to worry about, can I detoxify that estrogen? So it's always, you're always trying to thread the needle there. Uh, sometimes we give topical estrogen just in the lower body through the vagina, for example, mm. and that can help with bladder mm. irritability. 
Mm. Uh, we have exercises for bladder incontinence, but that deterioration of that hammock that hangs in the bottom of the hangs from mm. the walls of the pelvis and mm. lifts up the bladder and the uterus. Well, that uh, that hammock sags. And mm. imagine uh, throwing a bowling ball in a hammock. It's going to sag towards the tw- sag towards the ground. Now let's loosen the fibers on that hammock and stretch and, and get it make it more stretchy and elastic. And down you go. Now uh, the other ri- big risk factor is hysterectomy. So if a woman actually removes the uterus, her bladder drops that much lower because there's mm. room for it to drop deeper down into the center of the pelvis, which totally interferes with her ability to hold on and not wet herself. Well, I never had a hysterectomy, and I flex my PC muscle. Good for you. Keep flexing. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, these are all natural things. Basically, Mm -hmm. I always get a laugh with this line when I tell it to my patients. It's like as as after 50, everything, everything either sags or gets or gets either gets too too loose or too tight. But nothing's just right. Yeah. All right, my dear. uh, You're very welcome. Have a great day. All right. Now, let's see. I think I will do one more email. This one also from Inez. She sent this one uh, just today. Uh, High total cholesterol, very high HDL and LDL. Hi, Dr. Don. I'm a regular listener from Spain. Uh, I recently wrote to you about wound healing and inflammatory foods, and I really appreciate your job and trust your knowledge and your help. So I dare write to you again for your advice on high HDL cholesterol. Uh, Her HDL uh, cholesterol is 121 micrograms per deciliter. They use the same units we do. Uh, Her total cholesterol is 300 microgram, and her LDL is 170, and she has normal triglycerides. So these figures have been like this for more than six months. I'm 53, and apart from osteoporosis due to an early menopause, I'm healthy. Eating almost vegan with no meat or fish and lots of vegetables, olive oil, and nuts in order to maintain my weight. I've always been a little below the recommended weight for my height. And I don't eat fish. I walk a lot, don't drink or smoke. Could you please help me decrease both the LDL and HDL? I've heard that too high HDL is as bad as high LDL, and statins, as far as my doctor says, are not good for lowering HDL. All of these things are true, by the way, Inez. You're very accurate. It may be that I'm eating too many fats, and so should I increase starches to maintain my weight? Any other suggestions? I really appreciate your help and uh, your job and always trust your knowledge. So, Inez, whether you should do anything at all is really an open question. When I see a level of HDL that high, I suspect that the person may have a genetic variation causing them to have poor or dysfunctional copies of something called CETP. That stands for cholesterol ester transfer protein. And it is something that primarily acts in the liver, but also in other body tissues, and it allows the HDL to be taken up by the cells. So obviously, if your if your cells lack the ability to grab and basically engulf the HDL cholesterol, that HDL that is produced by the liver is just going to float around and not get used. And it is not nearly as dangerous as a high LDL because it is high density 
but there is a correlation with having dysfunctional HDL and having very high levels of it because it could be that you're making an aberrant form of HDL. I think that there are actually two diseases here, one in which the HDL is dysfunctional and can't be grabbed and utilized properly. And that may indeed be the reason that in certain analyses, you see an increased risk of cardiovascular disease with very, very high levels of HDL, levels above 100 uh, at least. But you, you're getting there. You are there. So we do have to consider you might be in that group. Uh, the LDL that you have at 170 is high enough for me to really want to look at particle size. And that is done, believe it or not, with an MRI machine, and they look at the size of the particles. Big LDL particles, I wouldn't treat. Small LDL particles, I would treat. And the key tiebreaker here is inflammation. So you need to get a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein measurement. And if that's abnormally high, when we would say greater than three would be considered high, that increases the risk of having that high LDL. And that might be a situation where taking a statin would be reasonable purely for the anti-inflammatory effect, regardless of what's going on with the HDL. The other key thing, because as I said, this can be due to gen- to genetic variations in that cholesterol ester transfer protein, in, wh- in which case it's not really an issue for you. That's functional HDL, and you're fine. You're just having trouble getting it out of your bloodstream, but it's not going to accumulate in your arteries. So my, my, it's complicated, isn't it? The key thing is just like in many ways with diseases, it boils down to inflammation and family history. So what about early heart disease? Do you have women who had a heart attack before uh, the age of 60? Do you have uh, women, do you have your mother had a heart attack at 95? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about early heart disease. In that case, you may have something that needs treatment. And my next suggestion would be getting a coronary calcium and uh, getting a look at whether you have a lot of calcium in your arteries because it's a good direct marker for whether you have a lot of plaque in your arteries. And if you did, then a statin might be a very reasonable thing for a 54-year-old healthy woman to be doing. You're eating a Mediterranean diet. I don't think you have any hope of fixing this with dietary change whatsoever. Keep eating that healthy diet. And if your family history is good, I think you can really not worry too much about the numbers. So we've got just a couple of minutes for some quick stories. And I thought I would talk to you about mushrooms. We had a little talk about fungi earlier Fungi might be talking to each other. Scientists think mushrooms may be able to communicate using electrical signals uh, through the mycelia. They have these underground tendrils, very important for the growth of uh, soil bacteria and the soil microbiome that grows our, our food supply one way or another. They know this because they measure the electrical rate of these signals, and they found that when the wood digesting fungi encounter wood, they start sending more signals in their mycelia, basically signaling, hey, hey, found some stuff to eat, to the other mushrooms to literally grow towards them to 
move the mycelia in the direction, and they found that these patterns are actually received by other species of fungi because there's multiple networks of mycelia. And they analyzed the patterns of these using some very sophisticated software, and they found that the signals clustered into groups of activity that closely resemble human language. In fact, they found a vocabulary of about 50 words. Now, it's possible that the mushrooms aren't talking and these are random spiking events. Uh, It's also possible that they are a form of language and signaling. And so maybe there is more on heaven and earth and at the microscopic level than is dreamt of in our philosophy. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.